Why did we choose New Mexico? Because New Mexico doesn't have any problems. We chose New Mexico because everything's fine. Except for the fact that out of two million people, there are 400,000 living in poverty. I know you all haven't had anybody try to pass voter suppression in this state. Because they don't mind, in your state, they don't mind black people and Pueblo people and Latinos and progressive whites getting together. They really want all of y'all to vote in New Mexico. That was the Reverend Dr. William Barber. This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Joshua Green. And I'm Pilar Monfaletto. Tonight is Our Country closes on a harrowing week. We feature the uplifting words of Reverend Dr. William Barber. Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, led the packed house for a gathering of solidarity in Albuquerque on August 15th. We'll bring you some of the passionate speech that the Reverend Barber shared with our city, and we have a special calendar of mayoral forums to keep you up to date on civic engagement. But first, let's get started with some music. Here is We Ain't Given Up by Eileen and the In-Betweens, who performed the song at the special event. Enjoy. Mama, they want to build a wall. Mama, they're gonna build it tall. She said, if you want to stick together, if you want to survive the fall, then you've got to build a bridge right through that wall. We ain't giving up. No, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. The future is uncertain, the storm clouds gather now, but I'm here standing with my shoulder to the plow. I'm ready. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. Mama, I'm so afraid They're bringing so much night into the day She said, you've got to hold on tight To each other and to the light And don't forget solidarity We ain't giving 
giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. That's Lazarus on viola. From Standing Rock to Flint, Michigan, from Orlando to the coast, our struggles are connected, a rising tide gathers our boats. From the tar sands of Canada to the greed of Wall Street, the truth is out and we've got to shout, we are the earth beneath our feet. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. I know you're not giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. Let me hear ya! We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. We ain't giving up, no, we ain't giving up. The Reverend Dr. Barber is a world-renowned social justice and religious leader who travels the country speaking against hate and discrimination. Reverend Barber is also the former president of the North Carolina NAACP. He stepped down to lead the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. He's a founding member of the Forward Together moral movement that gained national acclaim for their Moral Monday protests, which New Mexico participates in. Reverend Barber has led many national campaigns, and in his home state of North Carolina, he's had successes like leading the fight against resegregating public schools. Now, let's join the Reverend Dr. Barber as he speaks about peace, justice, and love. Now, we're not just here tonight to just have a gathering among ourselves. We're here and traveling to 25, 25 other states and the District of Columbia because we need a moral revolution. And I want to thank New Mexico and the other states for being the second of 15 regional trainings. And I want you to know that the first one was packed and this one is packed and people are still outside in the parking lot. I want that to go around. Here in the, the Red Mountains. I went out a minute ago because I'm always, I'm part Pentecostal so I'm always looking for signs. My grandmother uh, was, I'm Tuscaroran Indian, white and black in terms of my ancestry, and my grandmother was a seer. And sometimes I bear the burden of that as well, uh, being able to sometimes see and feel things very deeply. 
I didn't understand it for a long time until we, I had a conversation and was reminded that I was born in the year of death, uh, 1963. George Wallace, as a governor, loosed the demons of violence through his mouth. Segregation yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And while my mother was carrying me, Mega Evers was killed. And then there was a march on Washington, but some people need to be reminded that the march on Washington happened on August 28th because that was the day Emmett Till was killed, August 28, 1955. And then 17 days after my birth, four girls were blown up in a Birmingham church. And I've often wondered, what did my mother think that she had just had a child and my father think in a world that was blowing up babies in Sunday school because of white nationalism and white supremacy. And then by November, a president was killed. And then the only thought I have remembering before I was five was my mother screaming in the house and I came to find out later on, I was about four years old and that was the day that Dr. King was shot. And so I was born in a time of tears. And so I'm sensitive to pain. In the Quran, it says in one place, nine, division nine, the believers, both men and women, are in charge of and responsible for one another. They all enjoin the doing of what is right and forbid the doing of what is wrong. To my Muslim friends, assalamu alaikum. There is a text in the New Testament that Jews, Muslims, and Christians actually honor because it comes out of Isaiah 61. And it reads like this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And one translation says the year of the Lord's breakthrough the year of the Lord's breakthrough. And in that text, the word poor comes from a Greek word, potokos, which means those who have been made poor through economic system of exploitation. See, because when, when Jesus preached that sermon, there was a narcissistic tower builder sitting on the throne named Caesar. I don't know why y'all laughing. This scripture is almost 2,000 years old, so I know it has no relevance. And this tower builder loved to put his name on his towers. And put gold, on, overlay his buildings with gold. And he believed that he alone could fix the Roman Empire. And he said, if you read the ancient writings, that his whole goal was to make Rome great again. 
But in the midst of that, Rome was a deeply stratified society where the poor were dismissed. Cicero called the poor the dregs of the city. The poor were called the humiliors, the, those of low humility. And they were not welcomed. They were pushed aside and left to die. And it is to that group that Jesus comes by way of the Spirit and announces that they are the primary attention of God. And that they have now the freedom to nonviolently resist the systems of poverty oppression, captivity, because it is the year of the Lord's breakthrough. Y'all hold on to that, I'm gonna come back to it. We're here, Liz, myself, and the team, where's the rest of the team? From Union and from Repairs, y'all stand up. Clinton, wave your hands. We're here for two days with moral leaders, poor people, and activists for the second of 15 regional trainings, bringing together courageous and conscientious colleagues from 25 states and the District of Columbia. And we're coming together across all kinds of divides, recognizing that systemic racism, systemic poverty, environmental and ecological devastation and the war economy and the moral narrative of our nation must be challenged and changed. Challenged and changed. We cannot afford to work in isolation because all of these four are interrelated. There's an interrelatedness. Now, I want you, because of what has happened over the last couple of weeks, we need to understand that the reality that we're in now is actually calling for a poor people's campaign and a national moral revival. You cannot defeat and even sometimes redeem those who believe in white supremacy and neo-Nazism and white nationalism using their methods. There must be a movement rooted in love and truth and mercy that overwhelms evil with good. Now, I need to tell you that two things. Really what we're dealing with is not about statues. And you miss it if you think that's what's really going on. We also are asking too little, even though it must be done, when we simply ask people to condemn the extreme violence that happened in Charlottesville. It should be, it has to be, because a soul, a human being died, three of them. But the girl was 32 years old, the age of my daughter. And she died. Standing up, she said, because of what her black friends and her gay friends had been through. And others were injured, and many were psychologically injured. Clinton was in that church when the torches came.
He called me from that church because I couldn't be there because I was in Mississippi. I was supposed to be there with my friend Tracy Blackman. And Tracy is a strong black woman. And she called me saying, this is like hell. They are literally around this church and we don't know what's about to go down. And then she said, and they are not some group of backwater people. They're in polo shirts and suits and they're young. Now, you and I need to know a few things about this moment. It's not about the statues, and yet it is about the statues, which is why we, mu we must ask, not just that folk condemn what happened on that Saturday, but they must condemn the policies and the articulation of the policies that precipitated what happened. See, the, 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 Klu, the Ku Klux Klan was founded not to go after black people, but as a political organization to go after white people who were building relationships with black people right after the end of the Civil War and changing the politics of this nation. White nationalism and white supremacy is not just about bigotry. It's about a form of strategic hate that has an agenda. And in this dispensation, because it's always been around since the very original sin of this nation of racism and, 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 and slavery, but in this dispensation, it is well-funded, sophisticated, educated in our best schools, and it is not just the person who drives through the crowd. Why, why are they so concerned about that statue and others? 80% of those statues were erected between 1898 and 1922. They were not erected immediately in the aftermath of the Civil War because they couldn't have been. They were not erected during the Civil Rights Movement. Hmm. Why would all these statues be erected between 1898 and 1922? Because these statues were celebrating something. What were they celebrating? They were celebrating the deconstruction of reconstruction. They were celebrating that the policies of white supremacy and nationalism had been reborn and reinstituted and re, uh, what is it called, codified in the law. 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. You only had one dissenter, dissenter, Justice Harlan out of Kentucky. 1898, the Wilmington riots, where black and white duly elected fusion politicians were run out of office and many killed, more people were killed per capita on November 10th, 1898 in Wilmington than were killed on September 11, 9-11 per capita. Black people were killed, nearly 3% of the city of Wilmington to stop the progressive political movement. In 1915, Woodrow Wilson 
well, excuse me, in 1902, the last African-American congressperson was run out of the U.S. Congress through gerrymandering and voter suppression. Hmm. By 1898, the 1875 Civil Rights Act had been overturned when Rutherford B. Hayes lost the popular vote. Anybody that tells you we have never seen this before, tell them you evidently didn't go to history class, they didn't teach it, or you haven't been keeping your eyes open. <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes lost the popular vote, cut a deal with the southern states, and said if you will give me all of your electoral votes, when I am appointed president, I will give you the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court will undo the 1875 Civil Rights Act, which it was, they did do in 1883, which is why Dr. King was sad, if you hear it in his voice, at the March on Washington when he said 100 years later. He was saying, I, we thought we fixed this 100 years ago. But the deconstructors got them a president. And then they got themselves a Supreme Court. And then they took over state houses. And they took over the Senate and the Congress. And so, and then they got, then Plessy passed. And then they started building the statues, not in memory of the Civil War, but in memory, uh, in celebration of their new policy agenda being successful. And then in 1916, 15, Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat of that day, was very well educated at Princeton, was a governor, but education doesn't keep you from being a racist. In fact, since racism is a power term, you can actually be sometimes more of a racist if you're educated because you learn more ways to implement your bigotry. So Woodrow Wilson goes in the White House. Now he got a few black votes because he too asked folk, what do you have to lose? I'm trying to, t I don't know, I, this isn't even in my notes, so y'all just, I'm going with it. See, you got to remember, in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt had, big, had gotten convicted by the social gospel movement, and he started suggesting that everybody deserved health care. And a minimum wage. And we needed to protect the environment. And public education was a moral issue. And he didn't win. But Wilson ran, and he, got, he received some black votes. And then black people went to visit him in the Oval Office, and he kicked them out of the office. William Trotter and the white supremacists and white nationalists. Uh-oh. Then in 1916, he put Bannon, excuse me, sorry, he put... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, sometimes my history gets mad. He put birth of a nation, the Klansman, he played it to himself and all of his advisors 
in the White House, in the Oval Office, and that movie glorified the Klan and said that the violence that, that many of them uh, perpetrated was because other folk provoked them. Did y'all hear that press conference today? He played that in the Oval Office exactly 100 years to the date of last year's election. A president sent signals that I'm going to complete and finish the deconstruction of reconstruction and reinstitute white supremacy and hatred and, and, and anti-immigrant and all of the other things that went along with it. He then changed the desegregation laws and rolled back desegregation of the federal government. And his policies and his rhetoric emboldened the white nationalists. And what did they do? In 1917, after he does these things in 15 to 16, they go to Charlottesville and commission the Robert E. Lee statue as a statue celebrating that finally they had a sympathizer in the White House. They had sympathizers in the Congress and in the Senate. And they commissioned it in 1917. It was finished around 1922-23. But between 1915 and 1922, more blacks were lynched and more white people who were working with blacks. Because remember at that time, the NAACP was predominantly black, white. More white people were intimidated and more black people were lynched and more Jews were intimidated during that seven year period because you had a sympathizer in the White House that made it clear that in my policies, I may never use the N-word in public, but my policies will line up with the policy agenda of white nationalism. And that is why today, in what we're seeing, if we don't say to people, you can't just condemn the extremism of Charlottesville, you have to also condemn the policy agenda, and you have to ask every politician, not do you condemn this man killing this woman by running his car, yes, we should do that, and you, we know you're gonna do that, but do you condemn reversing the voting rights? Because that's white supremacy and white nationalism. And do you condemn the attacks on immigrants? Because that's white nationalism and white supremacy. Do you support restoring the Voting Rights Act that's been undermined? Because if you don't, that's white supremacy and white nationalism. Do you support Islamophobia? Because if you do, that's white nationalism and white supremacy. We got to have a movement that unpacks it because a lot of our white brothers and sisters are hurting and they get caught up with white rage and knee-jerk reality and they don't realize that white nationals, nationals and white supremacists don't care anything about poor white folk and poor working class white folk no more than they care about poor working class black because if you read their websites and their policies, they don't want a living wage. They don't want health care for everybody. 
And it's not just these folk on the fringes. We, got, we have to ask every politician, how have you voted? Because if you voted in line with policies that are also embraced by white supremacy and white nationalism, then your vote has precipitated their boldness. And you have blood on your hand too. And let me tell you why we gotta do it, because we missed it in South Carolina. Nine folk got killed in a church. And folk are now saying the governor was so brave to take the flag down. Now don't, this is this serious business. NWSB had been asked for 20 years and that flag didn't, living folk couldn't get it down. Now, so what that meant is only black death matters. And then black death only matters at the level we say it matters. So nine deaths, you get a flag. You get a flag that shouldn't have been up in the first place. For nine deaths. And for the most part, we were too silent. And everybody was saying, oh, the flag came down. But voter suppression is still up in South Carolina. Denial of health care is still up. Cutting money for public education and giving it to private schools that can resegregate is still happening in South Carolina. We must get beyond just denouncing the extreme acts of white supremacy and also learn to denounce the policies that embolden white supremacy. And the only way we're going to do it is we're going to have to do it black and white and brown and Pueblo and native and gay and straight together. Now, some of you, like all of us, many of you, on November 10th, you said the same thing that Jesus said when Jesus saw a fig tree that had leaves but no figs. Damn. <laughs> Isn't that what you said? <laughs> Jesus said that too. You said, what in the world? Now, some of you said, we've never seen anything. Stop saying that. Nail Painter said, what we have seen is the call and response of the American project. The call is for justice and you'll have the movement toward more equity and more racial justice, but at the same time, you can have the progress of racism and injustice. It is as American as apple pie. And they knew that Trump was not suited to be president, but he was suited to fulfill the role of stoking white rage. And People are now fixated on Russia. Yes, they hacked the system, but before Russia hacked the system, voter suppression hacked the system. <laughs> Racialized voter suppression that suppressed the vote. In Wisconsin alone, more than 250,000 people, and he barely won by 30,000 votes in that state. 900 fewer voting sites in the black, brown, and poor community. And then because of racialized gerrymandering, you have 16 to 17 seats in the United States Congress, the House of Representatives, that probably would not be where they are if they had not won through cheating.
I want to say to you, don't be totally despair because Walter Wink, who used to teach at Union, says sometimes you got to thank God for the blessing of an enemy. I'm going to help you. I'm going to hope y'all. I'm going to hope you now. There's a psalm that says, how can you sing a song in a strange land? Well, sometimes the way you get your gusto back up, the way you get ready, the way you get back in the game is you evaluate and take an inventory of all they had to do to beat you. And so, if it took to beat you, the progressive, the liberation movement, those who love justice, those who are the descendants of Cesar Chavez and Fannie Lee Hulu Hamer and others, if it took going all the way to Russia to beat you, if it took spending $10 billion in an election because of the illicit sexual relationship between the Supreme Court and big business that produced the bastard child of Citizen United. If it took, if it took 22 states engaging in voter suppression, if it took a man lying every other second, if it took, if it took state capitals all over this country doing everything they can could to suppress the vote, if it took all of that to beat you, then that doesn't mean you're weak, baby. That means you're strong because nobody, you better hear what I'm saying. If you have to cheat to beat me, you only cheat somebody that you can't win in a fair fight. You better pick yourself up. Pick your head up. Talking about how bad you feel. Don't you know the slaves got up every morning and said, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. Don't you know women, before they had the right to vote, got up and fought back? Let me tell you something. They elected a president. They didn't elect God. Lord have mercy. God is still on the throne. And I don't care how bad the election was, you still alive and you got breath in your body. And if you got breath in your body, you can fight one more round. One more round. Welcome back to Generation Justice. Tonight we're listening to the Reverend Dr. William Barber talk about inequality and justice at an event hosted by the Poor People's Campaign, a national movement to fight poverty and oppression by renewing morality in America. Let's continue listening with Reverend Barber's insightful speech. Dr. King said, the dispossessed of this nation, the poor, the white, the Negro, the Latino, the native must organize a revolution against injustice, not against the lives of persons who are their fellow systems. We're not here to destroy other people, but against the structures, the structures through which injustice comes. And Dr. King said that's probably the only saving grace. It's not going to happen overnight, but nothing is going to happen unless we do that. And so here's the thing. 
there must be a moral movement that examines public policy from a moral perspective, not from a democratic or republican perspective. As Dr. Forbes in his book, Preaching in the Holy Spirit, says that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of justice, allows you, gives us the strength to address the death of our times. The death of our times. And we need a movement that will examine the death of our times, a moral movement in every state, indigenous, homegrown. Liz and I are not coming here to develop a membership organization where everybody becomes a member of Repairs of Breach. We are resources. We are traveling course in public theology and public activism. Prophets and prophetic movements have to be born locally and indigenously. Nobody's going to helicopter in and save. But what we can do is unite the many movements around the country. We know I'm a, I'm a born and bred theological, evangelical, conservative, liberal, biblicist, Pentecostal, charismatic. <laughs> and that's why I don't understand these folk that say so much about what God says so little and so little about what God says so much. <laughs> Refusing to provide safety nets for poor folk and refusing to pay people a living wage when there are 400 families in this nation that make an average of $97,000 an hour while we are locking people up who make $15 an hour and just don't make $15 an hour. That's just wrong, it's immoral, it's not a, left and it's not right, it's just wrong. Undermining public education, wrong. Fighting pro-labor, anti-poverty problem, wrong. Wrong. Not providing affordable housing when the president lives in public housing, wrong. <laughs> Kicking immigrants out of a country of immigrants, it's just wrong. Warmongering, wrong. Not assuring that every child has a constitutional right to a high quality, well-funded, diverse public education and access to colleges, that's just wrong. Affordable Care Act is fine, but we want universal health care for every human being as a human right, and anything less is wrong. There must be a movement of people impacted and leaders, moral leaders and others who say that equal protection under the law for all people, regardless of their race, their color, or their sexuality, is non-negotiable. A criminal justice system that is not fair for black, brown, poor white people and indigenous people is just wrong. Suppressing the vote is wrong. In fact, we ought to have automatic registration at 18 as a constitutional right. If you, if you are automatically registered for the military at 18, you ought to be automatically registered to vote at 18 and anything less.
women still making less than men for the same work and then having men want to tell them what to do with everything down to their makeup is just wrong. It's just wrong. And this is not about saving the Democratic Party. We need a movement that will save the soul of this nation. And then secondly, there must be a moral movement committed even to mass civil disobedience, nonviolently, where people impacted by immoral, unjust policies with others are willing to go into state houses and to Ryan and McConnell's office and sit in like Rosa Parks sat in. But not knee-jerky. Not, not just to sit in, but based on an agenda, based on not just cursing the darkness, but offering an agenda of hope, and people willing to engage in civil disobedience to break through the narrative. Because right now we can't break through the narrative because the narrative is following every tweets and stuff. And we need a moral movement where people, what if in 25 states, a thousand people per state were willing to engage in civil disobedience for six weeks and 2,500 in Washington, D.C., and we were willing to do it unified together? What if? What if we, instead of just focusing on D.C., we focus on 25 states and D.C., and we act simultaneously around an agenda to deal with systemic poverty, racism, ecological devastation, and the war economy? Now, I want y'all to know this is not an idea Reverend Barber came up with. It's not even an idea that Liz came up with. It actually is in the Bible. Listen, Amos chapter 5 around about verse 10. This is what it says in the message Bible. Listen, listen, listen. People hate this kind of talk. Raw truth is never popular. But here it is, bluntly spoken. Because you run roughshod over the poor and because you take the bread out of their mouths, you, your leaders, you're never going to move into your luxurious homes that you built. You're never going to drink your wine in peace from the expensive vineyards you planted because I, God, know precisely the extent of your violations and I know the enormity of your sins. They are appalling the way you have hurt people. You are bullies, leaders. You bully the right living people. You take bribes right and left and you kick the poor when they're down. Justice is a lost cause. Evil is epidemic. Decent people sometimes throw up their hands and don't know what to do. And they sometimes think that protests are useless, a waste of breath. Seek good and not evil. You talk about God being your best friend. God bless America. I mean, God bless Israel. But, well, if, if you believe that, live like it. And maybe it will happen. What I need the leaders to do, from the king all the way down, is to hate evil love good, and then I need the people to work it out in the public square. You hear that? It didn't say I need the people to send a tweet. I need the people back in the public square. And then finally, there must be the power of a moral movement in order for there to be a breakthrough. 
My friends, I know I've been a little long tonight, but it's time for a breakthrough. It seems as almost, there's almost a deliberate design. I don't know if it's the corporate media or who, to have the media chase every little shiny object. All this voter suppression, and you haven't heard it on CNN or anywhere consistently. All this poverty. Otto Schwammer at MIT, when I studied there, he called it attention violence, which he said is as bad as violence when you're just ignored. And the elections are funded and done in such a way to ignore people. I've heard many a day for those 26 presidential elections that not one of them in the primary or the general mentioned the poor for an hour. Well, maybe they ain't gonna do it unless we help them. That's what Lyndon Bain Johnson told Dr. King. He told Dr. King came in and said, it's time for voting rights act. Lyndon Bain Johnson said, I can't do it. Dr. King said, I'm leaving. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going in the street to make you do it. I believe, Holly, that it's time for a breakthrough. We have got to break through the money. And those of you that were around in the movements of the past, and you've got the gray hair to prove it, God has let you live long enough to suit up one more time. And those of us who have benefited from the struggles that other people did on our behalf, it's time for us to ante up and pay our dues. It's time to break through the money, to break through the silence, to break through bad theology. We've got to break through this racism and break through this hate until every child is educated. We've got to break through until the sick receive health care. We've got to break through until the poor are lifted and not pushed down. We've got to break through until voting rights are secured. We want a democracy that protects the rights of everyone. And it's not going to happen unless we lead a revolution of moral values and get a breakthrough. We need a breakthrough until we're truly one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. We need a breakthrough until the powerful understand that their job is to serve and not be served. That's why we're coming together because the rejected have to lead the revival. The broken have to lead the breakthrough. And listen, I'm not promising we're going to get everything just because we do 40 days next week. We might not change everything next year. But if we come together, we, may, we can change the consciousness and change the narrative. But I know this, nothing is going to change if we don't come together. I would rather join you and 25 other states and the District of Columbia and go march into these state capitals and into Ryan and McConnell's office. I'd rather do that than sit on my behind and do nothing. I'd rather die. Y'all don't hear what I'm saying. I would rather die trying to make things right than to do nothing and accept the things the way they are. If we organize in the spirit of love and the spirit of justice, we can break through the meanness. We can break through the hatred. We can break through the regressive policies. It's time for a breakthrough.
Reverend Barber, thank you for speaking on unity for the people of our state. We need to reflect on how people treat one another. Many of us overlook day to day. Continuing to move forward, let's not forget what we can achieve as individuals. Reverend Barber, you are truly remarkable, and you have shown the world the light that comes out of darkness. Hearing your uplifting speech gave me hope, and your words helped me heal. And it made me understand so much more about myself and the society I live in. Thank you. To learn more about the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Dr. Barber, visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. We've come to the end of another great program. We'd like to thank our guests, Reverend Dr. William Barber, for sharing your passion, and thank you to the Poor People's Campaign for all that you do. Production assistance for tonight's program came from Camaria Umi, Jonathan Alonzo, Kateri Zuni, and Roberta Rael. And thanks to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for helping to bring you, KUNM listeners, the voices of young people in New Mexico. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Kon Alma Health Foundation, and the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Joshua Green. And I'm Pilar Monfiletto. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. To end the show, we've got some awesome tunes. Good night, New Mexico, and have a great week. son to Vietnam You give me second class houses and second class schools Do you think that all colored folks are just second class fools? We got the power to be loving each other no matter what happens We got the power to do that We're not a proof of the me Okay? We got the power to be We got the power for that. We got the power to do that. And we dream of home, I dream of life out of here. The dreams I I'm gonna praise him, praise him till I'm gone. I'm gonna praise him, praise him till I'm gone. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. When the praises go up, the blessings come down.